Hello, my name is Chris Hefner. I'm the pastor of Wilkesboro Baptist, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this message from Wilkesboro Baptist Church in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. For more information and resources, visit wilkesborobaptist.org. Tonight, we're going to deal with, uh, continue with the doctrine of Revelation. Let me read something that one of our church members wrote. Essie Hayes wrote this poem a number of years ago. And it is entitled, God Speaks. And it's a good way to kind of introduce uh, tonight's session. If God could speak to Adam and Eve so long ago, why couldn't he just talk to me? I thought I had to know. I walked along the pathway beside a little creek. I hear its quiet motion, but I didn't hear God speak. Above my head, an oak tree, the chirping of a bird. I listened for his voice, but I didn't hear a word. Morning glories marked the path in many splendored hue. Their beauty gave me joy, but I longed to hear from you. My journey almost over, I met a friendly smile. We exchanged a pleasant greeting. I sought God all the while. O God, you spoke in Eden in the coolness of the day. I beg you now to speak to me, to guide me on my way. And then at last he answered his message loud and clear. The stream, the bird, the flower, the smile of friendship dear. I spoke in love through all of these. Tune in and you will hear. Number one, I thought it was beautiful that one of our church members wrote that. I'm quite proud of that. That's a beautiful depiction of God speaking. And that's a glorious reflection of general revelation. That God, one of the ways that he talks to us, or one of the ways that he reveals himself to us, rather, would be through nature and through humanity and through history. And if we will pause long enough to look around and listen and explore the world that God has made, I think we will discover much more of God. But God also speaks through special revelation. That's the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of revelation, doctrine of Scripture is included in that. And so let me do a couple of, of things before we just jump right in and get started One thing is, uh, I have mentioned that Introducing Christian Doctrine by Millard Erickson is supplemental reading. I'm not going to be following this chapter by chapter in the discussions that we have week by week. Several reasons for that. Uh, I I think Erickson is very helpful, but for me to just break it down exactly as he does, uh, it's not, he does it right in my style. And so there are some places where there will definitely be overlaps, Uh, But there are also some places that I might divert a little bit. And also, I will discuss different things in different areas than, say, Erickson would discuss in Introducing Christian Doctrine. What I think would be most helpful if you're reading along with this is to read within the same segment that I'm dealing with. So this week we're dealing with God's revelation. Next week we'll deal with inerrancy and God's revelation or inspiration and inerrancy and God's revelation. And we'll either finish up the doctrine of revelation next week or the week after. And so if you've read his sections on revelation by that point, then that should be helpful. Does that make sense? Generally what I'm going to do is follow his outline for how he structures theology. So if you look in the book and you see introduction, he talks about uh, revelation under part two, and then he talks about the doctrine of God, part three, the doctrine of humanity, part four, person and work of Christ, part five. That's the order I'm going to follow. So I'll follow that pretty much to a T, but maybe not exactly how he breaks it down 
chapter by chapter. I might unpack it just a little differently than he does. So tonight, we're looking at the doctrine of special revelation. And specifically, what we're going to look at tonight is the canon of Scripture. Now, why talk about Scripture? In fact, one question that I know you might be asking is if this is theology, why are we talking about Scripture first? In fact, why does Erickson deal with Scripture first? In several of the theology textbooks that I have, Scripture, the doctrine of Revelation, is the first doctrine that's covered. Uh, in others, and I'm reading one right now by Robert Letham, he starts with the doctrine of God. But why the distinction? Well, whatever we know about God comes from Scripture. I mean, there, now, certainly we can assume some things about God from general revelation, but the things we know specifically about a God who saves and redeems and he is, not, he is knowable, that comes to us from what we find in Genesis through, the, through Revelation. We don't know anything outside of that. So here's what I find to be helpful. If we cannot trust what we find in Scripture, then it's going to be really hard for us to trust what we would say about God, Jesus, salvation, humanity, and everything else. But if we can discover that we can trust what God has given us in Scripture, and we hold it to be authoritative, we hold it to be true and meaningful, we hold it to be inerrant, we hold it to be something that is valid for our Christian living, which we'll talk about tonight, then all of the things it tells us about God, Jesus, faith, uh, humanity, salvation, all of those things, then we can trust. So we begin with the doctrine of revelation, special revelation. Now, one of the questions that comes with special revelation is what about how the Bible got to be? I mean, what is the Bible? That's an important, very introductory question. What is the Bible? When you uh, search for knowledgeable books, you can type in Bible, and you can find a Bible for all sorts of things. It's supposed to be kind of a manual or a guide or an understanding, but when we talk about the Bible, what are we talking about? We break that down in a number of ways, obviously. We're talking about an Old Testament and a New Testament. We're talking about before Christ and documents and books before then, and we're talking about after Christ's birth and documents and books after that. We're talking about 66 books as compared to say, the Roman Catholic Bible that includes the Apocrypha, which adds some books to the Bible. We're talking about something specific. And if we're talking about something specific, 66 books broken down into two testaments, old and new, how did we get to those two testaments, old and new? That would be an important question, because if we got to those in some kind of nefarious or concerning manner, then that might disqualify the Bible as being something we should listen to. Yet, if we got to those 66 books, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New, if we got there in some manner that we can acknowledge was a clear, there was a reason for it, and there's a reason for those books being included, and there's a point and a, and a method to that particular process, then I, I think that gives us some credit or gives scripture some credibility and it helps us be confident in what we have so in general the bible is uh, 40 authors 66 books over a period of 1500 years all together in one book that is made up of 66 other books 
And when we talk about canon, what do we mean? Well, one way to define canon is a rule of faith. A rule of faith. Uh, A yardstick is one way that it can be described. Um, And in that, it would be a series or a list. So those two blanks are rule of faith and series or list. So if it's a rule of faith, then the canon of Scripture provides for us an understanding of how we're to live out our Christian faith. Certainly we discover that in Scripture. In the more general sense, or the sense of how we got our 66 books, the canon of Scripture is the series of books that have been included, Old Testament and New Testament, in what we say is the canon of the Bible, or the canon of Scripture. So how did that come about, and and how do we know that we can trust the canon of Scripture? In one sense, I think we can obviously say there are two canons of Scripture. When we divide it out in our Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we think of it as two different eras, but one Bible. But in one sense, we could say it's two canons. There's Old Testament and there's the New Testament. Because there's a way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament, and there's a specific uh, emphasis that he makes in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, with the New Covenant, God established in some, some new principles. Uh, he expounded on what he had said in the Old. Um, I don't know that we ought to divide it into two canons, but they are definitely two testaments. So there's the one, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And, and one reason I think it, it can be helpful for us to make that distinction is you know this, when you read through the Old Testament and you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you read those laws, you say, um, hold on a second. I'm not living by that law, right? And you're not living by that law because some of you have had bacon this week. And if you were a good Jewish person, you would have never touched bacon. Uh, and, And then some of the laws don't even apply to the way we live in life anymore. Like don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Anybody in here have goats? No. Okay, so, so we don't, that doesn't apply to us in the way we live out our lives today. Other laws don't apply to us. It's not that they're irrelevant. It's not that they lose their, their, uh, their meaning. They have a meaning that's transferred today, but they don't have their same relevance. And one reason for that is because Jesus did something with the law. He fulfilled the law in a way that it accomplishes what the Old Testament was set forth to show us. If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I think this is one of the clearest statements about what Scripture says about Scripture, and certainly what Jesus says about the Old Testament. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So Jesus did not come to do away with the Old Testament, which is why as Christians and followers of Jesus today, we don't begin our Bible with Matthew, we begin our Bible with Genesis. Another reason is the Old Testament, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 24, when he was walking on that road, the Emmaus road with the disciples, the Bible says that he unpacked the law and the prophets and the Psalms and explained how those Old Testament writings pointed to himself. In other words, Jesus makes the Old Testament clear because of who he is and what he did. He fulfills what happened in the Old Testament. So how did we get the Old Testament? Where did that come from? Well, over the years, the Old Testament has had several different configurations. 
Uh, now, what Christians have today, uh, working from 2,000 years removed from the events of Jesus, but even the early Christians, what they had would have been an Old Testament that's very similar to our Old Testament, if not exact. There were some different uh, configurations of the Old Testament. For example, in, in some Hebrew literature, there would have been 24 books or 22 books. Now, that, that should strike us as odd to begin with because we know there are 39 books. But in those configurations, First and Second Chronicles would have been one book. First and Second Kings would have been one book. Uh, the minor prophets, instead of them being 12 distinct books, would have been one book. And so when you get those numbers and read, okay, 22 Old Testament books... They must have left a lot out. No, they weren't leaving anything out. They were putting things together in the way that they were counting those books. Old Testament canon is not really, um, what's the word, controversial. There are some Old Testament writings, the Maccabees and and other books that that would have been in that era uh, that some might say there's benefit to, but they've never really been controversial in terms of whether they were added in the Bible or whether they weren't. In other words, what I'm trying to say is the Bible that Jesus had, what he would have said would have been the Hebrew Bible, would have essentially consisted of the books that we have in our Old Testament. Okay, so when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God, he's specifically talking about the Old Testament scriptures. I think he's including the New Testament as well, but specifically he's referencing the Old Testament scriptures in that particular statement. So the Old Testament canon is not all that controversial. It really is not even all that controversial uh, by skeptical scholars. It's not one of those things that is debated. That's not true, however, when it comes to the New Testament. The New Testament canon is debated. Now, maybe not by us, but it is debated by others. For example, some of you have paid attention to news stories over the last couple of years, and occasionally some uh, archaeologist will discover a piece of writing that comes from, say, the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas or some other gospel or some the Gospel of Peter is one, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And then you'll read a few news articles from a few people that say, well, goodness, if we can have the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark and Luke and John, why can't we add the gospel of Peter to those gospels? Why why didn't it get included? Uh, Those mean, bigoted Christians, uh, way back in in, in the early days, they were exclusive. They didn't want to include these other writings that uh, fit, fit, by their standards, in the New Testament canon. So where did we get our New Testament canon from? In other words, the 27 books beginning with Matthew, concluding with the book of Revelation, how did we get there? Did some group of all-wise Christians decide one day that they were just going to include certain books that they liked? If you read Dan Brown's book, um, not the, not Angels and Demons, the first one, The Da Vinci Code. In that book, he proposes that uh, the Council of Nicaea is the council that determined what the canon was. In other words, they set the 27 books. That would have been in AD 325. So a little more than 300 years after Jesus' birth, that's when the canon occurred. It's not true at all. Uh, there are three criteria for the New Testament canon. In other words, the, the 27 books that we have in our New Testament Bible, in what we read and we consider to be authoritative, came about for three particular reasons. The first is this, apostolic authority. 
So for a New Testament book to be included, it had to come from an apostle or it had to be connected to an apostle. And some of you are going to say really quickly, well, hold on a second, what about Mark? Where'd that come from? Because Mark, you know, obviously was not one of the 12 disciples. So, so where, did, where, did that, where did he get that authority? Well, Mark was connected, first of all, with Paul. He went on missionary journeys with Paul. And then most scholars think that he got much of his information directly from Simon Peter. So early on, Mark was considered a gospel that was worthy of being listened to. In other words, it carried with it the weight of apostolic authority. Some might then say, well, what about Dr. Luke and what about Acts? Again, you've got Luke traveling with Paul, who even if Paul was not an apostle by Acts 1 standards, you remember that the apostles, when they didn't have their 12th, Judas had, um, had committed suicide, they met and cast lots, and we're not going to get into the details of that, but they met and cast lots and chose Matthias to be their 12th. Well, I think God had a different choice as affirmed by Jesus meeting Paul on that road to Damascus. And the rest of the book of Acts travels with Paul, follows Paul on his missionary journeys. I think it's clear that the New Testament affirms Paul was an apostle. So you get the apostolic authority that comes from Paul with Luke in Acts and also in the Gospel of Luke. And then, of course, you have the letters of Paul, which carry with them apostolic authority. And then you have James, who is the brother of Jesus. Jude, who is the brother of Jesus. Hebrews is a little bit of an outlier in the sense that the authorship is not certain there. Many would say that the Apostle Paul wrote it, but that's not certainly a consensus opinion. There are some that think a whole variety of different people wrote or could have written the book of Hebrews. But in other words, apostolic authority was an important factor in determining whether a New Testament book could be included as a book that the church should listen to. A second criterion is orthodoxy. What is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is kind of what we're doing here on Wednesday nights when we're working through our theology class. Orthodox theology is theology that the church has affirmed over the years. When you get outside of orthodoxy, you move into what's called heresy where you reject a teaching that has been held by the church since its inception or since very early on after its inception. So many of the books like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene were never included in the New Testament canon because they were not orthodox. There are places within those particular documents that are clearly in discord with what Scripture teaches. In some cases, they may have denied the suffering of Jesus, or they may have even denied the deity of Jesus. They arose during a period of Gnosticism, which is a viewpoint that that began during uh, the latter part of the first century of the early church and was uh, really a problem for the church within the second century that early Christians had to address. Gnosticism basically said the body's evil, the mind and the spirit are good, and so it kind of removed this, um, it really interpreted uh, biblical humanity in a very odd way or in a different way and dehumanized Jesus. And it was really problematic, created several different heresies over the course of that 100-year period or 200-year period of time. Well, some of these other documents and gospels, they were not orthodox. And so when you read the gospel of Mark or when you read the book of Galatians and Paul's clearly identifying Jesus as God and John is clearly identifying Jesus as God in the first very first few verses of his gospel, 
And when all of that is clear in these other 27 documents that we have, books that we have, and you read another book that is not saying the same thing that the 27 are, well, it was excluded. It was never considered canon from the very early on. Okay? A third criterion, and this is a fancy word, and don't worry, don't, don't stress about it. I'm going to explain it. Catholicity. So spell like the Catholic Church, I-T-Y. Now, that's where some of you are bothered now because I use the word Catholic. In one of the first creeds, the Apostles' Creed, uh, I believe in the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church. That, that is not the Apostles' Creed, and that word is not talking about Roman Catholicism. Catholic, in this sense, means universal. In other words, it's the idea of a general agreement by the church. So what Catholicity means in terms of canonicity, it means that the church at large accepted these 27 books to be canon. So, for example, let's say a church had the gospel according to Peter. I'm not talking about 1st or 2nd Peter. I'm talking about the gospel according to Peter, which is what is not accepted as a canonical New Testament book. Let's say a church in, I don't know, near Antioch had that, had that letter, and they, and they thought it was helpful, and they read it, and they talked about it in their worship services. By the way, that's not all that uncommon by, by what we do. I mean, in fact, in tonight, we're referencing a book, Introducing Christian Doctrine by Miller Erickson. It would not have been uncommon for a letter like that or a book like that to have made it into a church, a church setting to be used in some kind of discussion or Bible study. In fact, that's one of the biggest problems with the church in the first 300 years. Heretics rose up and started teaching things, and we're going to talk about some of these heresies over the next weeks and months. They rose up and so they started saying things that were false and untrue and denying the deity of Jesus, And what did the church have to do? They had to combat those particular heretical positions with orthodox position. It wasn't all that uncommon. But here's the the important point. That gospel then was not given universal credibility. What's fascinating about the canon of Scripture is not that the church or the bishops in 325 said, these are the 27 books that we agree with, so they're going in. Here's what they did. They said, here are the 27 books that the church for the last 300 years has said are the canon of the New Testament, and we affirm that. In other words, the bishops in 325 did not decide on a position. They affirmed what the church had already decided. How did they know what the church had already decided? Well, the Bible's very clear, and we'll get into this in more detail in weeks and months ahead, but the Bible's very clear that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Jesus said that in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16. He said that when we have the Holy Spirit, He'll guide us in all truth. What does that mean? Well, it means that if we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God, then guess what God's going to do? He's going to guide us to know what truth is. A church can get something wrong. A preacher can get something wrong. Um, But it is not likely that the church at large over the entirety of the early New Testament era, and certainly even over the entirety of 2,000 years, is going to get all of that wrong. Does that make sense? And so we have the canon of Scripture based on those three criterion. So F.F. Bruce puts it this way. In the canon of Scripture, we have the foundation documents of Christianity, the charter of the church, the title deeds of faith. 
For no other literature can such a claim be made. And when the claim is made, it is made not merely for a collection of ancient writings. In the words of, ancient, words of Scripture, the voice of the Spirit of God continues to be heard. Repeatedly, new spiritual movements have been launched by the rediscovery of the living power which resides in the canon of Scripture, a living power which strengthens and liberates. Essentially, what F.F. Bruce is saying is that the canon of Scripture is unique. It's unique to Christianity. There are other religions that have canons or that have documents, but they didn't get there the way that our canon got there. What's fascinating is that when you compare from Genesis to Revelation, the major themes and the major story of Scripture, as we're discovering on Sunday mornings, they interact and interconnect. They're not working in discord with one another. They're working in connection with one another to tell us the main truths about who God is and who Jesus is and who we are and how we need salvation. So let me give you three takeaways that we can walk out of here with tonight. The first is this, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in the weeks to come. It is we don't get to adjust the Bible. We must adjust to the Bible. And this is a practice that's been true of Christianity since its early days. The Christians who received Paul's first letters and received the Gospel of Matthew and would have met to read and discuss, they did not get to look at that scripture and say, I don't like chapter 5 verse 17. Or, or I don't like Romans 12, 1 and 2 because it's telling me to be a living sacrifice. And so here's what we like to do. We like to like scratch that out. Can we just scratch that out and then we'll move on because we like the rest of it, but we don't like that part of it. No, the early church never did that, ever. I'm not saying there weren't individuals who didn't do certain things like that, but as a church, that didn't take place. Why? Because there's a recognition that we don't get to adjust the Bible. We have to adjust to it. Now, that, that gets at the issue of authority, which we're going to touch on, just touch on tonight. We'll talk about it in more detail in a little bit, but the authority is this. If this is God's Word, if He wrote it, if He gave it to us, and we'll talk about inspiration next week, if He gave it to us, if it's Him speaking, I don't get to look at it and say, "Mm, I don't like that, and I can pull back from it. I don't have that right, nor do you. So we don't get to adjust the Bible, we get to adjust to the Bible. A second takeaway, if we can trust that the Bible is inspired and that the canon came down from God, we can trust the Bible. So what do I mean by inspiration? We'll begin next week with 2 Timothy 3.16. So we'll talk about inspiration. That's the very next part of understanding the doctrine of revelation. It simply says this, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. We'll unpack some of the different... um, uh, possibilities of what interpretation is and why we hold what we hold as Christians today or why I hold what I hold as far as the inspiration of Scripture. But if God spoke the words into existence and then He guided the process of canonization, I don't mean that He dictated it, but He guided it, He protected it, then we can trust the Bible. And what I hope to show after we get through next week and probably the week after is that when you open up your copy of Scripture, whether you're reading the ESV like I'm reading, or whether you're reading the New King James or the King James Version, or the New Living Translation, or the CSB, whatever version of the Bible you have in front of you, what I hope to be able to show you is that when you open it up and you read a page of that Bible, passage of Scripture, you go to a text and a verse, 
you can be confident that it came from God. I've studied my whole life on this, and I'm confident that it came from God. That's not a reason for you to be confident that I've studied my whole life on it. But I hope over the next couple of weeks as we work through this, and I give you some foundation where it came from, that you can be confident of it. One of the things that I do think gives us confidence is how the canonization process happened. In some ways, it is really good, well, not in some ways, in a lot of ways, it's really good that we can't look back and say, well, 12 guys decided on this. That's not what happened. In fact, what's amazing, and, and by the way, that the canon of the New Testament, uh, it was already being put together in 170. Uh, a, a gentleman by the name of, let me get his name correct, Melito of Sardis. He had a list of Old Testament books. Um, Origen had a list of New Testament books. Melito had a list of New Testament books. Augustine had a list of New and Old Testament books. And, and these are all, Justin Martyr had a list of New and Old Testament books. Tertullian had a list of New and Old Testament books. These are all first and second century Christian thinkers and pastors. And they're already putting down a list of the books of the Bible that they could trust and count on as being evidence of biblical revelation. So it's not like 12 guys got in a room in 325 and said, okay, we're going to pick these 12 because we like what they say. No, they affirmed those 27 books because the church had affirmed those 27 books for several hundred years. In some ways, the process is a little bit, how do you say it, um, uncertain. We can talk about a criteria, and we did, but it's not like the church got together in 80 through 25 and said, here's our criteria, and these are the books that make it in and these that don't. Why is that important? Well, because God does not limit himself to our theological prescriptions and explanations. He puts things together of his own accord and gives them to us and what was beautiful about the canon of Old Testament and New Testament Scripture is that Christians essentially just affirmed them, acknowledged them over years, and then when it came down to having to say, okay, which ones are we, cons- are we confident in? They had gotten it right for 300 years, and so they just put a kind of a, a stamp of approval on it. It's a beautiful picture. So number three is a takeaway. If we can trust the Bible as our rule of faith, excuse me, if we can trust the Bible, then the Bible is our rule of faith. It's our authority for life and practice. So we're going to get into what inerrancy means and inspiration means and some of the other aspects of trusting the Bible. But in short, here's what is uh, what we can affirm. Okay, God gets to tell us how we live out our Christian faith. That's his prerogative. And he gave us a book full of 66 books that tell us how to live out our Christian faith. The rule of faith for Wilkesboro Baptist Church is not the Baptist faith and message acknowledged by the Southern Baptist Convention. Now that's helpful. It's the Apostles' Creed. That's helpful too, but that's not our rule of faith. Our rule of faith is God's word. Meaning that there is no other authority. One of the major tensions between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, or for that matter, even Pentecostalism, and, and what we hold as, uh, as Southern Baptists, one of the main tensions is who is our authority. In fact, let me give you a preview of some of where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. Who your authority is 
determines where you get your truth from and determines how you live your life. And what the Bible is, claims is that the, the 66 books that we read from are God's authority spoken in words to us today, meaning he's the one who gets to dictate what our rule of faith looks like, how we live our lives. He's in charge, nobody else. Uh, and now, we'll discuss how interpretation fits into that, and there are some ways that we can, that you know, that there are some places in the Bible that interpretation doesn't seem to be as clear to others as it is to some, and there's debate on things. That doesn't mean that the Bible is any less authoritative. Here's what it does mean. Where it's clear and where it's direct, then we have a responsibility to obey it. Let me leave you with this, and uh, then we'll take some time to pray, and I apologize. I'm... I'm where my voice is wearing out, and that was only about 35 minutes. So my uh, Bible college students would have been really happy if uh, today was yesterday. So here's what that means for us as Christians, okay? And I, and I hope you're respectful of this um, as we work through this over the next few weeks. So if the Bible's authoritative, if it is God's revelation to us, then you and I not only have an obligation to believe it, but we have an obligation to abide by it. One of the greatest challenges that pastors and church leaders and churches face in 21st century American culture is this. There is an illiteracy when it comes to the Bible. So there are a lot of people who sit in churches who don't know what it says. Well, you can't do anything that you don't know that you're supposed to do. So if you don't know what it says, obviously you're not going to abide by it. Well, why don't they know what it says? Well, maybe they say... Maybe they say that it's God's word, but if they really believed it was God's word, then they would listen to it. And on top of that, if we really believe that God said it and he meant it, then we would not only listen to it and treat it as important, but we would actually put it into practice. So that issue of authority comes back to the way we behave. One of the reasons why I'm doing this particular study on Wednesday nights it's because, folks, I want to make sure we as a church are not a, just a church that believe the right things. That's tremendously important. But I want us to make sure that we're a church that behaves the right things. And sometimes, quite frankly, we miss it. And do you know when we miss it? We miss it when we get our lives out of kilter with what God has already said in His Word. You've done that. It's called sin. It's called missing the mark. It's called messing up. It's called unrighteousness. But the more we know Scripture, the more we believe what God's Word says, the better we're able to actually abide by it. Amen? So, uh, let's take some time to spend in prayer um, to the God who wrote His Word and gave it to us so that we can know Him and follow Him. Father, we come to You today and I thank You for Your Word and I thank You that we can have confidence that You uh, revealed yourself through scripture and I pray Lord that over the next weeks as we work through inspiration and inerrancy and authority and these other um, issues that relate to how we reflect on the pages of scripture I ask God that you give us insights and understanding and wisdom and more than even that I ask that you help us to be willing to apply your word to our lives our daily living to let it be not just the rule of faith in the sense of guiding our beliefs, but be the rule of faith in guiding our behaviors. And Father, as we open up your word and as we read it and look at it, I pray, Lord, that your word would read us. I pray that you would speak to us 
and convict us and change us and show us where we're sinful and show us where we're wrong and show us where we're flawed so that we can uh, confess and repent and be right with you. Father, we also recognize that um, the only way that people in our world are going to come to a saving knowledge of you is um, if you open their hearts, you open their eyes to see the truth of Scripture and you bring them to faith. Lord God, I pray that for the lost folks in our church that are attending regularly. Pray that for the children and teenagers that don't know you yet. I pray that for those in our community that don't have faith in you, that you would convict them and show them their need to respond to you as we preach your word on a regular basis on Sundays, but also as we share your word uh, verbally and practically as followers of you. Pray, Lord, for the salvation of sinners. Uh, Lord God, uh, you have to kind of have your head stuck in sand in America to notice that, um, or to not notice all the division that we have politically. And it's a sad state to be in such a wonderful country with so many wonderful freedoms and experience such a divided culture. It's heartbreaking. Uh, Lord, I pray for our political leaders that you give them wisdom and that they would line up underneath your authority and they would line up underneath what your word teaches and they would abide by your word. I know that some are not going to do that, but we pray for that nevertheless. And we're taught to pray for our leaders. We're taught to pray for peace, uh, that we may continue to spread the good news of your son and worship you faithfully. And do pray for that for our nation. I pray for us as followers of Jesus in this room who will have political conversations and will have tensions with family members, co-workers, neighbors, and friends who may be on a different side of the political aisle. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us as your followers to remember that we answer to a different king. We answer to the one who is in control, reigns, and rules forever and for always. And remind us that our allegiance is to you first. And Lord, where there may be political divisions, I pray, Lord, that we'd stand on values clearly that are biblical. But I pray, Lord, that you'd also help us to show grace and compassion to those with whom we may disagree. And not put barriers in the way for others to come to faith in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we'd be willing to share the good news of your Son with people who may not agree with us politically or in any other area of life, that they may first come to faith in you. Lord, help us as a church to be that kind of witness in our community and around our world. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are in our congregation that are facing heartbreak and suffering and difficulty and pain and hospital stays, and they're waiting on doctors and nurses to give them answers to their diagnosis. I pray, Lord, for those that are grieving, that, are, uh, that have lost loved ones recently, that are going to be at funerals this week. I pray for those, Lord, that are trying to figure out their health uh, situations. Lord, will you intervene in their situations? Will you bring healing, grace, comfort, and peace? As we look at our prayer list tonight, Lord, there are so many names. And I couldn't hope to remember everyone in every situation and each that they're going through, but you do. I'm grateful, Father, that as we come to you tonight and we lift uh, these prayers up to you and as we share our burdens with you, that you are, um, you know everything that's going on in each of these situations. And I pray, Lord, that you'd intervene, that you'd heal, that you'd give peace, that you show grace, mercy, and compassion. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for a church that uh, does try to live out your word faithfully. You've told us to go and tell the message of Jesus to people all over the world. You've told us to make disciples, to lead others to follow you. And Father, we try to do that uh, through mission trips and through mission giving and through mission partners. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for our cooperative program. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for 
that mission partner being shared on Sunday. And I thank you for the privilege we have as Southern Baptists to come together under at least the umbrella of missions and uh, do more together because we give together. I pray, Lord, for all of the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention, the six seminaries, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council, International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, and Lord, our state uh, denomination and local association. I pray for all of those that uh, do get funding through our cooperative program giving. I pray, Heavenly Father, you continue to bless those organizations and those ministries as they spread the good news of your Son, as they send missionaries, as they train pastors and church leaders and missionaries all across the world. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we leave here tonight. Glorify your name through us as we communicate your good news to others. I pray that you give us opportunities to love. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you give us confidence in who you are, in your word, and what you teach. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Wilkesboro Baptist Church. For more information and resources, visit wilkesboroabaptist.org. We are leading our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Come and join us.